You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome. Glad to see you here on this sunny day. This is the first out of two seminars um, that we are uh, arranging here, organizing on the theme of challenges to democracy in South Asia. And today we will focus on democracy in conflict and post-conflict uh, countries in the region. The second seminar is planned for the uh, towards the latter part of September, uh, and that uh, seminar will focus on minority rights and tolerance. Uh, these uh, seminars are funded by uh, Forum Seed, and uh, we're very thankful for their support. And I have been uh, asked to say also that follow us on Twitter. And if you want to tweet from this seminar, you should use the hashtag uh, UE event. And this, uh, the, the, the seminar is also recorded for a p- and will be edited into a podcast. Um, South Asia is home to about one-fifth of the world's population. It's home to two nuclear powers, India and Pakistan and bordering a third, China. These uh, regional power dynamics affects the int- all the countries in the region. The challenges, uh, challenges facing South Asian countries are many and diverse. Several countries in the region are and uh, will become even further affected by climate change. Large part of their populations are living in economic vulnerability Additionally, South Asian countries are rapidly urbanizing. Most of them face internal and external security challenges and uh, also political exploitation of social divisions within the countries. Still, several of the countries in South Asia have shown economic growth. Bangladesh, India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka have with varying, uh, varied levels of um, uh, sustainability seen their economies growing. Populations uh, in South Asia are young compared to those in China, Europe, and the US. These young populations have seen technologi- technological changes that affect their lives in tangible ways. But they belong to a generation invested in the idea of a rising Asia. And most of them wish to build a better life than those of the generations before them. But if we place these challenges and prospects side by side, we find on the one hand that the rewards can be high for South Asian countries if getting their political systems better attuned to the challenges they face. But on the other hand, there is plenty of evidence showing that the current political processes, political parties, parliaments, and executives in South Asia are not calibrated to channel the hopes and discontent of their electorates. Yet, an important starting point for a discussion about reforms and improvements of political systems is whether there is peace and perhaps prospects of a lasting peace. 
And if we compare the two countries that we will discuss today, Afghanistan and Sri Lanka, they're very different to each other if in terms of their history, social composition, and political landscape. But what they have in common is that they are, or recently have been, ravaged by conflict and deep rifts in society. And this is our starting point today. The challenge to democracy in conflict and post-conflict countries. The questions that will be discussed by our panelists today ranges from how to integrate insurgents into political processes nationally and locally, how to strengthen local democracy in areas where conflict have been rife, and how to successfully reform military and security sectors of the state to become more inclined to political resolutions of internal conflict. We will also, in one way or the other, touch upon the role of uh, the regional powers of India and China and the role they play in the internal politics of Afghanistan and Sri Lanka. We have two eminent panelists who will give their view on these complex issues. First, we will hear from Dr. Admir Skodo. Admir has taught at University of California at Berkeley and is now a researcher at Sassnet Lund University. And he specializes in Afghanistan and especially migration in and to and from Afghanistan. We'll then listen to Dr. Vagisha Gunasikara, who arrived yesterday from Colombo. Vagisha is involved in several, several research projects uh, relating to the political situation in Sri Lanka. And she's also, in addition to this, the director of the American Institute of Lankan Studies in Colombo. Uh, both speakers will have about 10 to 15 minutes for their presentation. I will ask a couple of follow-up questions, but then since we have a manageable audience and uh, people are quite uh, aware of the situation in South Asia, as I see by familiar faces and, and the list of, of, uh, uh, from the audience list, we will open the floor for questions as soon as possible. And uh, we will finish about 6 o'clock. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Admir. So thank you so much, Henrik, and uh, thanks to the Institute for the invitation. Hope I have uh, something valuable to offer to everyone. So um, I'm just going to get right to it because I don't have a lot of time. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, two major challenges to democracy, more broadly state building in Afghanistan. And um, these will be very broad points, exemplified with a few concrete instances. And later on, maybe I can say a little more on issues concerning civil society and, and the economy, because they relate to these developments. But I'm not going to go too deeply into that, as I'll discuss them until I have too long. So my first point, which I think is very important to keep in mind when discussing and trying to address the, the challenges in, in Afghanistan, is that Afghanistan can't really be seen as a sovereign state in the, in the uh, meaning of that term as we know it here in the West. But I think it has to be seen as an uh, 
internationalized and fragmented state. And by internationalized, I mean that Afghanistan has been at the forefront of international state building projects since, since the 1940s and 1950s at the very least. Um, countries like France, Germany, uh, Britain obviously, the United States and the Soviet Union have, had, have directly shaped Afghan institutions since the 1940s and that's very important to bear in mind. And what I mean by fragmented is that uh, the uh, Afghan state institutions and the way society operates uh, uh, is divided along various axes. Uh, and you can't really say that the Kabul government has control over uh, uh, the entire territory of Afghanistan. Now, it's a very simple fact, I think, but it has several extremely important consequences for the legitimacy of the Afghan state, um, the democratic process, such as it is, and the potential reintegration of Taliban insurgents. Um, so, one consequence of this state uh, of this fact um, is that um, because a lot of Afghans see the current government as essentially. Uh, an extension of the Western occupation, it's seen as illegitimate. And that kind of goes back to a pretty long-standing myth in Afghanistan, uh, which says that Afghanistan, uh, any legitimate Afghan government has to maintain sovereignty and the ability to, to withstand any pressure attack from major empires, not least the British Empire and this, the, the Soviet Empire. Now, this fact, and which is really a perception among a lot of people that the Afghan state is Ill illegitimate, this perception is something that the Taliban have used very successfully. And, and so did the Mujahideen fighters before them, uh, I remind you, uh, when they claimed that the communist Kabul government was essentially a puppet government of the Soviet Union, which rendered that government illegitimate in the eyes of the Mujahideen uh, and uh, a lot of Afghans. Um, so this is, this, this is really important to understand if you want to understand the, the current Taliban strategies um, because a lot of them currently uh, revolve around trying to further weakening the, uh, Kabul, uh, the Kabul government through various means. And I think we see that in the strategies the Taliban have started adopting, um, even in their bombing um, campaigns the latest attacks have been focused on uh, journalists, on voting, you know, voting registration offices, uh, various ministries, obviously, various various ministers, various political officials. Uh, all this really is is uh, an attempt to further weaken uh, already weak state. Um, so we can understand that strategy if we if we if, if we have this perception of the Afghan illegitimacy in mind. Um, we can also understand another strategy by the Taliban, which is to never engage in direct conversation with the Kabul government. If you look at the way, when, when, when Taliban speak of any peace negotiation or any, any, any peace settlement, they always insist on talking to the United States directly. The United States runs Afghanistan in their eyes, and they will never talk to the Kabul government and will directly talk to the U.S. only. And uh, 
a kind of third strategy that they have follows from uh, from the from the ones I've already mentioned, which is that they never uh, want to participate in elections because they see the state as fundamentally illegitimate and they don't want to participate in uh, the making of a legitimate state. Even though both Hamid Karzai and Al Ghani have tried to get them to run for elections, so that's that's one really I think really important challenge that the Afghan state currently faces and then also Afghan democracy. Uh, another major challenge uh, uh, that Afghanistan faces is that because Afghanistan is fragmented, because its sovereignty is fragmented, obviously it doesn't have monopoly over violence. The Afghan army and the police can't contain the various uh, attacks that keep occurring throughout Afghanistan. It currently, the Afghan, sorry, the Afghan state and military currently controls less than 60% of Afghan territory. Uh, and as of April 2018, there were 10% 10 less soldiers in the Afghan army than 2017. Most of them have defected because they, again, uh, have started to jump ship, to put it in crass terms. And actually, quite a lot of them I've interviewed in Sweden because a lot of them made their way as refugees, as defectors. So that was interesting to, to, to hear about. Um, So obviously that's an important challenge and um, I'm not sure I have any uh, solutions to this problem, but I, th I think just understanding it in these terms might help us to, to, um, to redirect our thinking in kind of slightly different terms than, than we're engaged in right now. Um, and of course, this fact that the Afghan state is seen as illegitimate and the fact that there really is, I mean, the democratic process therefore also is seen as illegitimate and the fact that the Afghan state doesn't have monopoly over violence has a consequence for any potential reintegration of insurgents that might want to defect because the Taliban do have quite a lot of people in their ranks that do want to defect. I mean, uh, they suffer enormous casualties. Now, in a recent proposal by, by Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, one of, one of the old-timer uh, Mujahideen leaders who, who miraculously made his way back to Kabul politics, one of, one of, he recently proposed a, a scheme of uh, reintegrating uh, uh, Taliban who have defected. Um, and so, uh, and this was a very local scheme and it had the support of Ashraf Ghani and the, and the local Kabul, and the, sorry, the, the Kabul government. Uh, it was extended to, to the Taliban insurgents, but they didn't go for it. You know why? because they didn't think that the Afghan state was strong enough to offer them the security that they wanted on a local level. Again, they saw the Afghan state as illegitimate and uh, as uh, lacking in sovereignty. Um, so uh, a final point about this fact that the Afghan state has this legitimacy problem. In my interviews with both key political players in Afghanistan in the past and present and everyday people that, that, that made their way as refugees, countries like Sweden and the United States, I've noticed that a lot of Afghans actually don't believe that there's one government or state in Afghanistan. They, th they think that there's currently three governments. One is the Kabul government. The other is, of course, the territory controlled by Taliban. And the third is the territory that's under, under ISIS control. Um, so that's just another kind of interesting 
thing to keep in mind when trying to uh, uh, gauge what Afghans think about about the state. Okay, so that's that's my first point. I think that I think that took about five minutes. So hopefully, the other point will take no longer than that. The other point is very related to my first point. Now, because of because of the state of affairs, again, that the Afghan state has a uh, suffers some crisis of legitimacy and so on. Because of this fact, the, the the conflicts and problems that we see in Afghanistan must also be understood as being fragmented and internationalized. And Afghanistan is really can't be called a post-conflict society, and I don't think that we're going to see any solution to, to the conflict in the near future. And I think uh, that's so, not despite, but because the conflict is internationalized and fragmented. Now, I know that this goes against a pretty, pretty uh, uh, central assumption in the inter international community, which is that the conflict and the problems of Afghanistan are essentially internal to Afghanistan and can't be placed in the international interventions that we've seen in Afghanistan since at least the late 1970s. Um, I'm not a fan of that assumption. I think often it is justified by other assumptions which remind me of colonial anthropology and psychology. So often when I read a lot of policy documents and such, definitely military documents, I see concepts like the mud wall. I don't know if you've heard of the, this concept, but there's a belief in certain, in certain circles that Afghanistan is kind of like a black box, like the way it really operates uh, plays out behind uh, the mud walls. You know, all the Afghans, Afghan houses are uh, protected by these high mud walls, and on the inside is where a lot of Afghans live their private lives, right? So a lot of kind of anthropologists came up with this term, the mud wall, as this kind of inaccessible, very pre-modern, almost barbaric uh, state of affairs that uh, Westerns, Westerners can't have access to. Um, warlords, strongmen are other concepts that we see in the literature and policy documents. Um, uh, and a belief that Pashtuns are kind of the natural inheritors of the of the Afghan government are all kind of assumptions I, I, I see very, uh, is very prominent in, in this, this, this literature and that they actually do determine policies and interventions and such uh, from Western powers. But what I suggest is that Afghanistan isn't really like this at all. I think Afghanistan is a mirror of the modern world and the modern world's political hopes, visions, and problems, which include the problems of democracy and corruption that we see also in the West. I find that these problems are also mirrored in Afghanistan. Um, so, okay, I have a few more minutes, so I'll give you a few examples of what I mean here. Um, if we look at the, all the claims and visions to anyone who's aspired to take over the state in Afghanistan since the, since the communists, of course, but including the Taliban, including the current government, we see that they've all sought to emulate modern bureaucracies, modern Western bureaucracies. Uh, Western or, or actually Soviet bureaucracies, but they've also been <laughs> adopting these bureaucracies. I don't know if you know this, but the Taliban actually had five-year economic plans, and um, they were very keen on uh, uh, meeting quotas, industrial quotas, and 
that was a system set up during the, the communist era, which they simply took over. And a lot of this, you know, civil service, they also took over, you know, uh, uh, fr from, the, from that era. Um, and currently, all Afghanistan, a lot of, sorry, a lot of, Afghanistan, of Afghanistan's institutions, uh, its laws, its courts, its military structure, its electoral system and economy, um, the really the veins and muscles of the state, if you will, uh, are uh, designed by Western powers. Um, the police, for example, is very much designed by Germany, um, while the legal structure uh, has been designed with the help of the Italians and actually the Swedish. Now, it, Afghanistan is seen as a very corrupt state, and that's true. But that corruption also extends to Western involvement. One of the f currently foremost kind of analysts when it comes to Afghanistan is uh, Barnett Rubin in New York. Now, he studied this um, uh, in depth. And his conclusion while looking at, for we just we took one example, which is counterinsurgency operations in Afghanistan. And he, he looked at them to see whether we see corruption there. And uh, he found that corruption was extremely widespread in counterinsurgency operations that um, uh, were run by, in this case, predominantly American, American forces. And he, he uh, this, uh, this is Barnett Rubin. Barnett Rubin, uh, I wanna mention a little quote uh, to, to, to by Barnett Rubin. He said, uh, quote, counterinsurgency creates an illusion of success through a sort of financial military Ponzi scheme, end quote. So what he found, by he looked at various reports and requisitions and so on made by um, uh, people in charge of counterinsurgency operations. He saw that a lot of them were fake, doctored, uh, written in such a way uh, that clearly showed that um, the money that was uh, received from American the American military, Department of State, and so on, actually didn't go to counterinsurgency, counter but it made its way back through various, through various uh, informal channels, made its way back to the United States. Um, and uh, uh, some people were prosecuted, but not, but not many. So, but that's just an example of that we have to view uh, corruption as all other problems in Afghanistan, not only as an internal Afghan problem, but a problem that might also be very, very uh, systematically ingrained in the international fabric. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and uh, give feedback and questions to Dr. Kamal.
good afternoon to all of you. Um, before I share my views briefly on Sri Lanka, engaging with the topic of this seminar, which is challenges to democracy in war-affected countries, I'd like to thank the Swedish Institute of International Affairs for inviting, inviting me here. It's really a, a pleasure to be here among all of you, share and exchange ideas about some of the most pressing issues uh, that concern my country today. Um, as many of you know, uh, Sri Lanka's 30-year uh, civil war ended in 2009 uh, in a military defeat uh, of the liberation tigers of the Tamil Ilam. Um, to say it very briefly, uh, what led to the end of the uh, to what led to the end of the war was a fracturing of the LTTE at the margins. Uh, there was a breakaway faction uh, in 2004, uh, a highly centralized uh, state structure, an exclusive political structure uh, that was created after 2005 with the election of Mahinda Rajapaksa as president and his family members uh, as very influential and powerful officials in government, and the financial and military resources that flowed into Sri Lanka from mainly China, uh, but also Pakistan and Iran. All these factors culminated in creating conditions for a victor's peace. Um, this brought an immediate uh, and large-scale anti-state violence, uh, anti but um, uh, left a legacy of a highly centralized uh, and exclusive political settlement, uh, which was legitimized and held together uh, through continued state of emergency, uh, the deployment of targeted violence or the threat of violence against opposition groups, uh, a lot of violence on media as well as other ethnic groups, um, the distribution of patronage and externally funded growth supported by India and China. Um, simultaneously, the state embarked on an aggressive program uh, of securitized post-war uh, development, modernization, and state building. Um, in, um, in preventing the emergence of uh, military or political opposition from the Tamil communities, this new political settlement was very successful. Um, but perceptions of exclusion and corruption within the Sinhala uh, ethnic polity led to the regime's uh, downfall. Uh, so in January of 2015, uh, the Sri Lankan people ushered in a change of president and subsequently in August of the same year, a change of parliament. Uh, many political analysts uh, at the time saw this as a critical turn in which law-abiding citizens uh, of Sri Lanka executed what they called the silent revolution. Uh, reflecting on this now, uh, many of us uh, saw this as a progressive rupture in the political process, uh, the replacement of an authoritarian government by electoral means uh, without bloodshed. Um, the current regime, we call it Yahapalanaya, uh, it means good governance, uh, led by uh, President Maitripala Sirisena and Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe. In 2015, they came on a platform of a bold new uh, reform agenda consisting of three components, peace building, democratization, and state reform. Um, for a moment, we found ourselves uh, on the cusp of uh, Sri Lanka's transition into a third Republican era with um, new constitution in the making and a, and a transitional justice process underway. Now, three years after Yahapalane regime, um, 
we are back in a state of a political crisis. Um, although the current coalition uh, delivered early on some promised reforms, such as the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which diluted the powers of the executive president, um, its ambitious plans for deep constitutional reform have virtually ground to a halt as infighting between the coalition partners has intensified and the joint opposition has strengthened its position. Um, the post-war period has, has also seen a continuation of wartime violence, particularly in the northern province, uh, where the military presence increased considerably after the war. Uh, and the mutation of violence linked to new insecurities, for example, intensifying attacks on, on Muslims. Uh, you may have heard in the news there were, um, there were attacks against Muslims in the central part of the country in February of this year. We are seeing an intensification of reactionary identity politics um, from dominant groups at the center. An example, uh, as I said, um, the, the candy example, but also looking back at 2013, there was um, strident Sinhala nationalism of, uh, of a Sinhala Buddhist extremist group called the Bodhu Balasena that flourished under the presidency of Mahinda Rajapaksa. And very similar political formations have continued to uh, be nurtured after 2005 regime change. Um, uh, Sri Lanka has basically oscillated between um, from liberal to illiberal peace building and then a transition from illiberal to liberal peace building. It's a case study of um, contradictions within, limits of, alternatives to liberal as well as illiberal peace building that would inform current frameworks of democratization and, and peace building. A comprehensive analysis of challenges to democracy and peace building in Sri Lanka is not possible in 10 minutes, but I'll briefly touch on a few minute, a few issues at the level of regime, uh, governance, uh, broader political processes of transformation and development that will give you a flavor uh, of the current crisis. Um, I'd be happy to elaborate on them during the discussion and later hear your ideas about them. Um, the current phase, the phase of peace building, which started in uh, 2015, regime change. Um, it constituted of a new window of opportunity for a transition from illiberal peace to a stable form of um, post-illiberal peace in Sri Lanka. That political opening was made possible largely by the struggles uh, carried out by a broad coalition of uh, political parties and social movements uh, for democracy, human rights, uh, minority rights, and, and peace. Their vision, at the time included justice to ethnic minorities in the form of a new peace package. Um, this regime change did occur, yet uh, the reform program and the peace project began to move uh, in the direction of a political stalemate. Um, this situation happens in the backdrop of a power struggle between uh, the president, uh, Maitripala Sirisena, and Prime Minister uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe coming from two different political parties and trying to run a government together. The major initiatives um, for corruption-free governance, um, political reform through constitutional change, and rebuilding ethnic relations through minority rights are now completely halted. Um, if you have followed the bond scam, 
uh, irregularities and insider trading of uh, issuing Sri Lanka central bank bonds, you'll realize that the, the current uh, regime, the government finds itself in its most serious crisis since it was formed in January 2015. Uh, the current regime has fallen victim to its own false promise of a corruption-free uh, good governance. Um, since the war ended in 2009, Sri Lanka's debt burden has risen exponentially. Uh, as of January of this year, according to the Auditor General of Sri Lanka, our outstanding debt was about two trillion uh, rupees. Uh, it's about uh, two, two billion, um, uh, tw sorry, 12.88 billion dollars. The Auditor General said that the reasons for this insurmountable um, level of debt is an excess of loans taken, exceeding of debt ceiling, and covering up uh, the loans by hiding them from books and the transfer of loans um, to various sources um, and people. Uh, the mantra of economic gurus and government officials right now is that we need to attract more foreign direct investment. Uh, evidently, the low FDI levels we have now is due to perceptions of policy instability. Uh, at this time, the root cause of Sri Lanka's debt crisis, policy instability, and failure to attract FDI to generate uh, economic growth despite its uh, strategic location uh, on one of the busiest trade routes in Asia is this high uh, level of financial corruption and reputation damage to the financial sector and the economy, including a lack of transparency and a level playing field for investors, both foreign and uh, local. Uh, the central bank bond scam, uh, what I mentioned before, is only a tiny uh, example amidst all of this. Uh, there is also a current crisis in, in governance manifesting uh, at a variety of levels, posing serious challenges to democratization and, and peace building. In the past three years, the government has demonstrated incompetence in managing even the most mundane aspects of, of people's lives. Um, the garbage problem in Colombo is, is serious. Uh, have you, I mean, have you heard of any country in the world where people have died because a mountain of garbage <laughs> has descended upon them? 30 people died here uh, because when the, the garbage mountain collapsed last year. So examples like this, and along with this uh, rapid flu epidemics um, leading to people's um, lives at, at, at a great risk, exposes the ineptness of, of the central government also provincial councils and local authorities in carrying out even the most elementary functions uh, of a government. So this is, again, going to your presentation, Admir, the legitimacy is being lost or it's being eroded in at various levels, at the level of the regime as well as now level of governance. Um, another incompetence of the government is manifested by its inability to carry out another major function uh, expected from a democratic government, which is managing and resolving competing demands and aspirations of different social classes and groups through dialogue, debate, negotiations, and a creative compromise. The unresolved and, and worsening a problem associated with private education institutions is the worst example of how the current administration handled one of its fundamental duties uh, to society. So the, basically the management of social conflict and tension through creative compromise and policy innovation. 
uh, in looking at post-war peace building and democratization in Sri Lanka, development is something we cannot leave unaddressed. The transformation of uh, the nation state through development has been central theme uh, for both um, the immediate post-war government and the current regime. Um, the emphasis was and still is, is on um, large-scale urban transformation and infrastructure development to attract uh, global capital and tourism. Uh, I don't dispute the benefits of development, but the process of development can, also, can always be violent and comes at a cost to people and environment. More so, uh, practices and, and policies of um, previous and present governments uh, and its agents, what it highlights is that the chosen course of action does not necessarily follow safeguards that protect people or the environment. And sometimes, uh, as evidenced by the mass evictions in Colombo, if, if you know about uh, the mass evictions that continue to happen, by the way, um, is this is contrary to the existing uh, legal and policy framework, and it undermines the rule of law and democratic governance in, in Sri Lanka. It also misses this fundamental point that all citizens, all citizens of Sri Lanka must be treated with dignity and fairness by its own government. So neither the new um, democratic regime, which has access to, the, con to uh, the control of state, its institutions and resources, nor the social forces that are involved in defending and resuscitating uh, the democratic process have thought of development and uh, post-war state building and peace building as two interrelated projects. These conversations always happen in parallel and they never meet each other. So debates around constitutional reform and transitional justice have failed to stimulate attention to the structured nature of violence uh, inherent in political economic arrangements, threading through pre-war, war, and, and post-war periods. Um, South Africa seems to be a popular example and a role model for Sri Lanka's peace building uh, process. Um, but as, as South, uh, South Africa seems to be this role model, uh, it's worth pointing out that uh, alongside an ambitious uh, truth and reconciliation process, it also embraced a neoliberal political economic trajectory that failed to transition out of economic structures of apartheid. Um, I mean, if you look at uh, the mid-2000s uh, research, um, research produced in that uh, time, income inequality in South Africa overall, as well as between the races, um, has increasing, increased significantly, as did uh, wage inequalities in general. This is also the general trend in Sri Lanka. Um, so with public disenchantment over the plummeting standard of living and progressive isolation from the electorate, the current uh, political settlement um, survival uh, at the future elections, uh, provincial and national, we have a provincial election coming up in September, is likely to be at serious risk. The outcome of uh, the local government elections, which happened uh, this year in February, um, is a clear indication that the political pendulum is swinging in the other direction. Um, there's a prominent uh, scholar of political science in Sri Lanka, Professor Jayadevi Angoda, who characterizes the current stage of post-war peace building in Sri Lanka as passive peace. Um, the defining feature of this passive peace is the continuation of the condition of 
the absence of war and war-related violence without an effective process of reconciliation, uh, transitional justice, and state reform. What I propose is that we need to integrate development also to this mix uh, so that both these debates, um, we can see the connections between the two debates. Um, as a concluding remark, I will say not to be fooled uh, by Sri Lanka's improving position in the Fragile States Index. Uh, in 2016, uh, it showed the most improvement, uh, moving nine spots in the, in the rankings. Uh, Sri Lanka might run the danger of relapsing into the cycle of illiberal politics and illiberal peace. Um, already, the broad contours of returning to illiberal consensus have begun to appear in the horizon with the sharpening uh, of ethnic and, and social tensions. With that, I'll, I'll stop, and I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions and go into detail about the points that you mentioned in your closing question. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.